Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone from Lansing, Michigan. My first job was raking leaves when I was probably eight. You're listening to a guy named Briggs Sorber, someone that you likely know, but probably don't know that you know, if that makes any sense. I knocked on the door, and these two guys open the door, and they're looking at me. They go, what do you want? I said, I just, can I rake your front yard for a dollar? He goes, yeah, go ahead. I was just jacked. You know, I was going to make a dollar. This is my first job. And these guys had a car backed in, and they were moving stuff out of the house. And then they took off and said they'd be back. And I said, okay. So I kept breaking leaves. And this another car pulls up. He looks in his house, comes running out, and he goes, who the hell are you? And I go, I'm raking your leaves. I, I, the guy said I could rake the leaves. What guy said you could rake the leaves? And I went, the guy that was moving stuff out of your house, he was being robbed. And I didn't know it. And so the cops came, and they were asking me questions. I'm going, what is going on? Well, then the cops left, took the report, and then I finished, and I knocked on the door, and the guy answers the door. He goes, what do you want? I went, I want my dollar for raking your leaves. He goes, for God's sakes, I just got robbed. I mean, I'm eight, right? So the guy gives me a buck, and I just remember going home, like, not thinking anything of it. And I told my mom the story, and she was, like, shocked. They were robbing the house. I didn't know. (laughs) So that's how my working life started. My mom and dad worked hard and moved us up to the upper middle class. So work was always part of what us kids did. My parents eventually were divorced when I was in high school, which was pretty hard. I just think that there's a lot of sacrifice in marriage And I think when we are so involved in ourselves in this world, that can pull us apart. And I just think that that kind of happened. I don't think that the divorce itself was as crushing as just to see them slowly grow apart. And there really wasn't any glue there to really hold that marriage together. Now, if I had my mom and dad here, I love them both, and they still get along fine, which has made it very easy on us kids. But... To see something that you invest in for so much just be taken apart. I just don't think they had maybe rules of engagement of good marriage. You know, they didn't have that. And that was sad. So by the time they got divorced, it was almost a relief because things were starting to get a little bit toxic around the house. There wasn't any violence or anything, but it was just, I don't know what it was, kind of a lack of love or something, like a black hole. Me and my buddies started mowing lawns. There weren't those landscapers back then. It was just neighborhood boys cutting grass. And so we just opened up the white pages. And I remember my buddy, uh, Tim Falmer, and I. Tim Falmer is now a professor at the University of Michigan in psychology. <laughs> but we went through and said, we need to mow 10 lawns. And then if we can mow 10 lawns, two lawns a day, Monday through Friday, then we can spend the rest of the time at the beach. It's like... Let's do it. So we got on the white pages, and it was uncanny, but everybody called it went, well, sure. 
<laughs> it's like, wow, this is easy. So we would haul our lawnmowers behind our bikes, and we had a couple horrendous wipeouts doing that. Eventually, somebody would ride their bike up on somebody's lawnmower and yank the guy off the bike, and we'd end up like a mess in the middle of the road. But a lot of people looked at us and went like, man, you guys are like going after it. And so we loved being our own boss. And then from there, I was also a dishwasher at an Italian restaurant called Filipelli's. And gosh, I only made like, I don't know, four or five bucks an hour. It was pretty miserable. And then I just realized, now I'm getting back to mowing the lawns. And I was like, I like being my own guy. We bought a 66 Ford pickup truck. It was an old agricultural truck, just a beater. That was the truck that I drove in high school when driving a truck was not cool. I mean, people thought that was odd, especially when you live in suburbia. We made a lot of money with that truck. My brother and I started getting into moving just trash and brush around. And then my mom started, a, this is after she divorced, she started another business. She would go to estate auctions and she would buy furniture and then haul it to this little store that she leased out, clean it all up and resell it. And so she bought this whole truck for, for about $300, like a 15-foot step van, instead of just a pickup truck. And told us, you know, if you want to use that for your moving, go ahead. And that's what really got us into moving, like apartments and small homes. And when John and I started the business, it was called Men at Work Movers. And underneath that, it said two men in a truck, 25 bucks an hour. And then my mom drew on a napkin a cartoon truck with two stick men in it. And that's where our logo came from. Our logo to this day is a drawing that my mom made on a napkin. And she said, why don't you drop men at work movers and just call yourselves what you are, two men in a truck. Then high schooler Brig is one of the two men. And his brother John is the other man in two men and a truck. So that's where our name came from. Oh, and then see that orange candy dish there? Uh -huh. That sat on our uh, kitchen table. And for every job that we would do, we'd put $3 in that dish. And that was our ad fund. I saw Hank Meyer. Of the massive Meyer Supercenter and grocery store chain in the Midwest. At a business leaders from Michigan meeting. And I said, Hank, you probably don't even realize that when I first started my business, the first advertising that I did is I put a two men in a truck on an ad with, with rip-off you know, phone numbers on the bottom. And I, I'd sneak into your store and I'd hang that up and I'd sneak out of there, like on my bike probably. And he was laughing so hard. You know, you helped my marketing campaign. It was just so funny that I'm having lunch with him and he's just the nicest guy in the world. And I just thought, man, this is wild. I used to sneak in his store. Now I'm having lunch with him. <laughs> and when we come back, more with Briggs Sorber's story, Two Men in a Truck. And my goodness, what a great American Dreamer story it is. This is Our American Stories. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook and go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. Hey. 
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the life story of Briggs Sorber, one of the two men in the moving company, two men in a truck. We worked a lot of jobs, but this job we just loved. I mean, it was hard work. We were small guys. Like how small? Oh, my gosh. I was probably... Five seven and a, maybe a buck forty. <laughs> We'd show up at someone's house, and I can't tell you how many times I'd get this. People would look at me, and their shoulders would slump. It's like, oh crap, here we go again. Is there a problem, ma'am? Well, we were expecting a couple scrapping lads, and we we're expecting two men, not two boys. It's like I totally understand. I said, I'll tell you what. Let us work for you for 15 minutes, and if it doesn't work out, we'll call the office and get a couple bigger guys here. Is that fair? Yeah, that'd be fair. And so John and I would go downstairs, and we would move the upright freezer. That's the thing that nobody can move. We've already moved like five of them that week. And then they would just go like, we are so sorry that we questioned you. It's like, no, that's fine. It usually meant a good tip. The funny part was we never got called out because... We had no extra guys. We had no office. So <laughs> it was like, you know, we we're walking a wire without a safety net there. But John and I were both pleasers. And this industry was very easy to please in. People would just do backflips if we, if we even showed up. Or they would just be like, oh, my gosh, you guys did such a great job just finishing. It was just like, guys, this is what we came here to do. So when John and I left... For college, Brig and John never thought of two men in a truck as a career for themselves. Oh, no, never. I mean, it was like John and I, this was beer and book money uh, in that order. <laughs> and uh, we were drinking green bottle beer as opposed to our other guys drinking like the cheap beer. John and I were drinking really good beer. You know, that was like the next move up, you know. The phone kept ringing off the hook for two men in the truck at our house. So my mom called up and said, can I, can I keep this, can I hire a couple guys to keep this going? And we went, oh, for sure. And when we came back, she had bought a new truck. And we went, what are you doing? Now we got payments. She bought like a 20-foot truck. And John and I would work at school. But it really became, because it didn't make any money. I mean, for kids, for beer and book money, it was fine. But my mom loved it. And my mom quit her job at the state of Michigan. She had enough. I mean, she was passed up for promotion because she was a woman. She went and talked to her boss, and he just pointed at the guy and went, hey, look, he has a family to feed. Like, my mom didn't. My mom was divorced. And so she had enough of that world. She took all of her qualified retirement money and cashed it all in. People were screaming at her. Her own mother, my grandma, was just going, what are you doing? There's a lot of people just said she couldn't do it. Is this a man's world? The first two years, when she quit her job, she didn't pay herself anything, and she just lived off that qualified money and ramen noodles for two years. And if she was sitting here in this room, she'd tell you it was the happiest days of her life. I think she's crazy, uh, but she loved building the business. She finally made a profit. Her third year, I think she made $1,000, and she wasn't sure how to do the taxes because she was like, I've never had a profit So it was the sweetest thing. She wrote 10 checks for $100 and gave them to nonprofits in Lansing. And that got back to the Chamber of Commerce and some other business people. And they went, who is this lady? (laughs) 
It was at that time that Lansing like wrapped its arms around Two Men in a Truck and went, this is our moving company, which was the coolest thing. And Michigan State University had a bunch of small businesses come in to talk to the, their business school. She went in there. My mom was very shy, but God bless her, she got through it. And this lady came to her and said, did you ever consider franchising? My mom goes, who would buy a moving franchise? And she goes, well, I'm a pet nanny. I take care of people's pets. I franchise, so I think if I could, you can. And my mom said, let's do it. And went through just a wild ride of, we didn't know what we didn't know about, you know, trucking regulations and franchising rules. And the state police showed up at my mom's and were about to take her to jail because we were doing illegal moves. We're like, what's illegal about moving furniture? Well, there's probably a lot if you're not licensed. But my mom, when she started franchising two men in a truck, 49 years old, no college education. Pretty, pretty amazing. I was on Northern Michigan's rugby team. We were having a party and we needed hot dogs. And the party that we were at was kind of like in the, the student ghetto. So there was like this random shopping cart on the side of the road. And so Fran was walking by with a couple of her friends. And we just went, do you want to go? Do you want to cook out? And they're like, okay. So me and my buddy picked up Fran and we put her, I'd probably get arrested for this now, put her in the shopping cart and just started pushing her down the road all the way to the Blue Link party store to get hot dogs. I mean, this uh, girlfriend agreed to be put in the shopping cart, right? She did. She was cracking up. I mean, it was all innocent. It was in the middle of the day. It wasn't that far, and she thought it was kind of funny. And then I got to know Fran at this party, and my roommates were like, Brig, we got to go. We got to go. We got to get back to the house. And so they, they picked me up and threw me in the car like college guys do. And I unrolled the window, and I yelled, Fran! She looked, and I went, I'm gonna marry you someday. And she was like, that guy's drunk. And uh, I didn't see her for a couple months and I saw her at a party and we went out that night and we just started dating. And I loved her because she was very independent. She paid for her own apartment. She paid for her own school. She was the only one out of the 14 kids that went to college. She would study in the only bathroom that they had She'd flip the toilet seat down, sit on that, and put the clothes hamper there as a desk at night when all the lights were out. She'd study in high school because she wanted to go to college. I was a kid that by the time I went to school, my parents would be perceived as upper middle class. So a lot of the things that she worked hard on, I took for granted. I went, that's really cool that she does that. And then I ended up getting Fran pregnant and I don't mind sharing this. I asked her if I could share this. And she said, as long as it helps people. Yeah, I don't like you running around, but yeah, I guess. So when we were younger, we wouldn't share this, but now we share it because when she told me, she went, I'm having this baby. And back then, I, if she would have said, I'm gonna have an abortion, I'd say, fine, I'd drive you. But she said, you don't have to marry me. I'm gonna have this baby. And I just went, that is so classic Fran. I just fell in love with her more. And I went, well, come on, Fran, we'd probably get married anyway, which we probably, I really, truly feel we would have. And she's like, well, yeah. And I said, well, let's get married. Little did I know, I'm thinking I'm doing her a favor. She took on like two babies, you know? <laughs> I mean, I was like a kid and, um, and she really kept our family buoyant because I wasn't, I'd go to church with her on occasion at college, but I didn't think anything of it. You know, and we had this baby, and I just worked my ass off. I mean, I went from 170 pounds when I graduated from college to 
135 pounds. I worked at the Meyer Thrifty Acre warehouse, which I didn't mention that to Hank Meyer, but he'd probably think that was funny. I worked at his warehouse. I worked for a small beer distributorship loading trucks and then two men in a truck. I remember that when we found out she was pregnant, we had no insurance or anything. And uh, it was like a welfare baby. We couldn't afford it. And they sat me down and I said, I'm not taking any welfare. I was very proud. And they went, the state worker was just uh, probably sick of working with people like me. He's like, shut up. She needs attrition for that baby. And uh, he gave me like $100, go buy some groceries. And he goes, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And I was like, I'm graduating from college in like a month. He just shook his head, walked away from me. And I said, I will never take welfare money again. And that was in itself a sin, right? The way I was thinking, it was because of pride. I didn't, by the way, but man, I worked my ass off uh, to make sure that that never happened. But I'm glad it did. It gave me an appreciation when I see people down on their luck that I am not judging them. So that was like a, a wake-up call for me. But watching Fran live her Catholic faith, it was like, she was never mad. She took care of that baby. Fran kept us all buoyant until I kind of got my crap together. I did the coaching. I did all that. I was around. And it wasn't that I was out with my friends. I wasn't drinking all the time. Thank God I didn't have those things on me. It was more, I was just more greedy about my own life. Like, poor me. Look how hard my life is with these kids. It's like, dude, you brought it on, you know? And Fran didn't have to take this, by the way. She decided to have the baby and take your useless butt when you were in college. I mean, God. And what storytelling, folks. That's Briggs Sorber, one of the two men in Two Men in a Truck. And, of course, we now know the name should have been Two Men in a Truck and a Mom. And, of course, and a bride, and one heck of a bride. When we come back, this classic American voice. My goodness, listen to the self-deprecation. Listen to the lightness, the humor. But, my goodness, this is some serious stuff he was going through. And what a woman he married and sticking through it with those kids that a lot of people would have just said forget about forget about and when we come back more briggs sorber's story what an american dreamer story as always brought to us by the great folks at job creators network more after these messages with Briggs Sorber's story. He might have been a useless butt, as he put it last segment, but he was a successful butt, becoming the president and CEO of Two Men in a Truck that was now a big company with $198 million in revenue. I really thought success was freedom, and the only way to freedom was money. And because when Fran and I first got married, uh, I will never say that we were poor. Poor is when you have no hope. We were broke. <laughs> yeah, there's a difference. I know, there's a gray area there, but maybe I dipped my toe into being poor because there was times I felt like I was losing hope. But I don't know, I just, there was something deep inside of me. I was like, I don't want to be like this. How do I get there? I just got to make a lot of money, you know? So we worked really hard and Two Minute Truck continued to grow. And 
I took a bump in pay and I thought, man, I finally made it. I bought a old brick ranch house that was in a neighborhood that I felt was a prestigious neighborhood when I was a kid. And I had a in-ground swimming pool in the back because it was all about being validated. It was so important to me. It was very important what people felt about me. I did believe in God, but I didn't think he was a loving God. I thought it was more of a, an angry God. You know, the harder you work, the more I'll love you kind of thing. Treat people good, they'll treat you good. It's like, man, I can play that game. I'll work hard, I'll be nice to people, I'll throw money in the, you know, in the pot at Christmas time, you know, <laughs> where they're ringing the bell. I'll do all that stuff. So I really felt, well, I made it. That's so why I went out and I leased an Audi A4 because I thought, you know, it is a sophisticated European vehicle. I went out and I got a Frank Sinatra CD to play in it. Isn't that horrible? I mean, <laughs> the funny part, I ended up kind of liking them. And then I thought that successful guys drink scotch, so I went out and bought a bottle of Johnny Walker Black. And I wanted to join a country club to you know, rub elbows with other rich guys, tell war stories. I mean, seriously, I did all this. It literally happened like that. So I had my first scotch on the rocks in a cigar, and man, I almost puked when I drank that scotch. It was, whoa. I mean, I was afraid to pour it on the grass. It burned my grass. But I finished my cigar and I thought, well, how are you supposed to feel? Maybe this is something you have to grow into. I don't know. It was at that point, it was like within a couple days that I slipped into depression. And it was, it was horrible. You know, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. I went to go see a doctor. I went, well, geez, I probably have cancer now. You know, something's wrong with me. You know, my life is perfect, so something's wrong with me. And the doctor went, no. You're just depressed. And he just simply wrote me a prescription for depression. Like it was like nothing. And I got in my car and I just went, no, I'm going to put that in my wallet. I'm not going to take this pill. And I don't want to belittle depression. But for me, I was like, no, I was not depressed up until like now. And it was bad. I mean, I wasn't going to kill myself. But if I got hit by a bus, it wouldn't have bothered me. But no, I got to wrap my arms around this. And I remember my wife just going like, what is the deal? I mean, we are doing really good. She goes, why don't you work out again? So I, I got on my workout bench and I just, I literally just broke down. I'm not talking about man pouting here. I'm talking about sobbing. I was just like, God, what is going on here? You have given me more than everything I've asked for. But why am I feeling like this? On the news, there was a, a story about the Left Behind series of books it was like revelation. and I was always kind of into that. Because I was a validating guy, that's why. It was like, well, let me validate why this wouldn't happen to me. So I started reading into these books about how, what if Jesus came back in this lifetime and he took back all the Christians and left behind all the non-Christians? And I went, oh man, I'd go for sure. He'd take me up because I'm like the man. I mean, I give money to all this stuff. And they would refer to the Bible. So I would open up the Bible and it's like, well, okay, it kind of says that. It says that in there and this. And I thought, you know what? You need to start reading this Bible. Faithful people started sprinkling in my life. I started getting books. I started getting into France Catholic faith, which I totally took for granted. And then I realized, man, Brig, you have no relationship with Christ at all. And so I really started taking a look at how trying to validate myself with God was totally useless. You know, we can't do anything. We can't do any good things to win God's favor. Otherwise, we wouldn't need Christ. And that's when I realized I need a relationship with him. And then 
it dawned on me that, wow, my view of God has totally changed. I always viewed God as this religious thing from a distance that I'd kind of walk around and look at and judge. And it was like, no, now I was like working with God. Like he was sitting down with me, working on me. It was like, this is really cool. God made all of us. When I get to know people, even the people I want to punch in the face, <laughs> I can still see God's glory in them. I go, I can see God in that person. Although the rest of the person, I'm not sure where that person came from, but I can see that. And so I start seeing that person in me and working on myself. And while all this was going on, all this business chaos was going on. Not long after Brig got into the big chair, the big recession of 2008 crashed into the business. I thought, I'm going to start praying on the business too. When I took over, we were so broken. We had so many broken processes at that time. Our website was so bad that 80% of the customers using the website got so frustrated they left it. The two years before that, we won the J.D. Power Associates for customer satisfaction, and we had those trophies proudly displayed. And when all those things went down, I went, put those damn things in the closet. They went, why? And they went, because we suck. We, we don't suck. It's like, yeah, we do. I go, we suck. We, we are not a good company right now. Right before the recession hit, people were buying houses. Everybody was just going nuts. And we became order takers at Two Minute Truck. We were growing exponentially, going, this will never end. So we were working, but we were extremely broken. But there was so much business, it hides the brokenness. So you gotta understand the recession really started with the collapse of the mortgage industry. Well, when the mortgage industry collapses, people can't get money, they can't buy houses. Well, the next thing people would say, well, people are losing their houses, so they were calling you to move them. Well, when people lose their houses, they can't afford a mover. So it cut us down dramatically. We were hemorrhaging cash, and I'm looking around and going like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do here? I hired an outside firm to come in. I said, I need you to take a look at our IT department. I don't even know where to start. And they're like, all right, well, we can do a full assessment. It was like 40 grand. And we didn't have much money. It was like, well, I got to start somewhere. And I go, look, I'm not the smartest tool in the shed here when it comes to IT, so do what, everything you have to do, but I want this report to make sense. I, I want to know. And they went, would you like, like a grade? And I went, yeah, I understand grades. I understand them really good. <laughs> I said, well, we're going to start with your people. Oh, you get an F. I went, okay. And they went, good people, working hard, but the job is, it's outgrown them. And I went, all right. I'll have to let people go and get new people. And they're like, oh no, they have not been using any code on anything. We actually are looking at this wondering why no one has taken this down. You don't even have a firewall in here. You, this is a bowl of spaghetti. We don't know how this works. You have to hire new people and have them work next to your old people. So you make that happen. I went, well, if it's that or the business goes under, that's kind of an easy decision. Uh, what about software? I so said, your, your software is... Um, you realize that you're using pirated software. I'm like, no. Yeah. And I went, wow. I said, you realize you've got a box of new software that you paid $60,000 that's been sitting on the floor of your IT for about three months. I went, no. And he said, and your hardware is uh, old and useless. It was like, all right. 
let's work on that. <laughs> I had to let. We had about 78 employees. We went down to about 52. Most of the people there were really, really working hard, and there were some people that were coming in here literally doing nothing. I prayed about these things. Lord, what are we going to do with your business today? What are we going to do with your business today? And what a story you're hearing. And by the way, we hear this kind of story. So many of the entrepreneurs we feature here on our American Dreamers story. When we continue, Briggs Sorber's story, two men in a truck story here on Our American Stories. start with our final segment in our terrific American Dreamer Hour. And as always, our American Dreamer stories are brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, working hard for small businesses to effectuate public policy that allows those small businesses to turn into big ones, employ people, and change communities and change lives. Let's return to the final portion of Briggs Sorber's incredible journey. It's the 2008 recession, and two men in a truck is struggling. did have $3 million in a money market. I was told it was a money market account. It was actually a bond securities account. I went, all right, Lord, what are we going to do today? Although I had the $3 million in the back of my mind. Well, I can buy new equipment. I can do this. I can do this because I have $3 million. A couple days later, the banker took me out to lunch and said, hey, Brig, uh, just want to, how's the things going? I said, pretty good. We're going to need to get at that $3 million. He's like, fantastic. A week later, he calls me up. And he goes, I got some bad news. I said, what's that? And he goes, well, that bond security account actually takes, there's an auction. You have to auction those things to get to those things. The auction collapsed this week. And so you may never see that $3 million again. And I went, all right. And I had a few words with the banker because I found out later, I said, well, you were having this lunch talking about your golf game. There was other bankers that were pulling their people out of this account. He's like, I just don't want to tell you, Briggs. So I actually went to shut the door, and I just started cracking up. I'm going, okay, God, now you have my attention. <laughs> Come on, he couldn't really be laughing about losing millions of dollars. I was, because it was like, what are you going to do? It's like, because I could see God working in the business, and I went, this is awesome. I mean, now I've got nothing. I've got a half a million dollars in cash. That was it. And I was in the process of letting these people go, and I'm praying over them. And then I get this feeling, God's going like, uh, Rick, you gotta take care of these people you're letting go. Remember, they didn't cheat or steal from you. The majority of them were working really hard. It's a recession, and you're letting them go. You need to severance them. And it's like, all right, how much money do we have? I got 500,000. So I severanced out half of the $500,000 right during the recession, so we had nothing. But I did that because I knew it was the right thing to do. And I knew enough, I know God's voice when I hear it. I know it, and I know that this was right. And I said, this is God's business. And people thought I was crazy. And it was just like, So then I brought in a couple outside executives because I needed 
help right away. Well, the first things the outside executives did is they said, let's take a look at all the agreements Tumina Trucks in. They were appalled at a lot of these agreements. They go, we are getting hosed here, big time. I went, here's the deal. I go, rewrite the ones that we can rewrite, get out of the ones that we can get out of, but we're doing nothing illegally. And they're like, we, I went, no. If we cheat, we are immediately looking at God and saying, you won't take care of me. Lord, I'm gonna choose to cheat because you're not capable of taking care of us. It's that simple. One of us, this was this lady, she was like an angry lady, but she was damn good. She got a hold of some of the vendors. They all know who she is. She said, Bill, this is so-and-so. Hey, where are you? I met two men in a truck. They get really quiet. She goes, you know we're not going to do this anymore. And he goes, well, I figured somebody's going to come around. And they signed it. We saved without breaking any rules. We saved about $400,000 in bad contracts in about two months, which more than offset what I severance. That's God working in the business. When we keep our pea brains, when we pray and keep our pea brains out of the answers and have, you gotta wait, right? It doesn't happen overnight. We got a hold of the attorney general, Mike Cox at the time, and we talked to him about what happened with this bond security thing. He's like, give me that. <laughs> and he made a couple phone calls and the bank called up and said, we want to come over. We got balloons. We got the cake. And we have a check to give you back for your money. I said, you can stick your balloons and your cake. <laughs> Just bring the check over. It's not your money. God made us more than whole. In that setup for us, we had two down years. I don't think we went down more than 10%. And through over halfway through the recession up until now, we've had 107 months of month-over-month -month growth. We haven't stopped. We're still growing from that, from doing these things, and from praying over the business. Get into business because you love the business. Don't get into business part-time. Get into business fully, like my mom did when she quit and did what she did. Get your employees into the adventure and let them taste the excitement of it, the scary part of it, and all of it. And you'll have them for life because they're also God's creation. Take care of them. When all that stuff was going down and I, had, I let a lot of those employees go, I brought the departments in and man, some of these Younger employees were in tears. It was like, look, there's a lot of barrels that we're gonna cut off this boat and throw in the ocean. Things that we don't need. And we're gonna save this company. And I stole this line. Actually, it hangs right there. An employee got it for me. It says, ships are safe in port, but that's not what ships were built for. This two-minute truck boat has been in port long enough. And I know we're broken, but we're going out in deep blue water because we are gonna die here. I know a lot of you have been working for two men in a truck, you work for a moving company, you didn't sign up for this adventure, but guess what, you're in it. Some of you will survive it, some of you won't. Some of you will excel in it, but we will see what happens. These were the people I had left. So, you know, the fancy Christmas parties, they're over. The big buses to the Detroit Tiger games are over. The five week sabbatical for people that have been here for five years and longer, over. And I had a couple of employees come in my office and just go, 
you are destroying the culture. And I went, no, I'm, I'm keeping our company. I said, look, do you want to send your kids to college? Do you want to buy a cottage someday and retire in some really cool thing? These are the things that we can work for, but we got to cut this stuff out. We have to get to what we're good at. And they said, okay. And the beautiful thing was that year, we had enough money to bonus employees during the recession, even when we lost money. I remember coming in right before Christmas, I had a stack of bonus checks on my desk. And I'm telling you right now, tears came out of my eyes and hit those checks. And it was just like, we have an awesome God. And I just prayed over those checks and thanked God for them. And to this day, our CEO now, he hands out the checks. He's also a strong Catholic. And I told him, pray over those checks. Never, never take those things. Do I have a few employees here that take them for granted? Yeah, it's human nature, right? But I had employees coming in that first year in tears because they got these checks. We're just happy to have a job. I said, I'm just happy to have you guys in this adventure. Those checks have gotten bigger. We've got a lot more people to distribute them. But they're a constant reminder of the blessings when we listen to God into our business. Take care of your vendors. Your vendors should be profitable when they work for you. You should be your best customer to your vendor. They will share stuff with you. God will work through them to help you in so many ways. Take care of the communities that we're in. Be the big brother to many nonprofits. You are making your living there. You damn well better put money back into those communities. You take care of all those things. The money comes from behind tenfold, and it comes as a byproduct of those things. How many times do we see people make money decisions on the front end? They don't end well. They just don't. Put that stuff in God's hands. It has worked out well for us. But Briggs' mom hadn't yet found the same faith that he had found. There's things that are in the Bible, if we don't understand them, can be very offensive to people. I think one in particular was a woman should, I'm paraphrasing, take second fiddle to the man. And it's like, that's not what Jesus meant. But if you take a look at my mom and how, through the state of Michigan, she got passed up on jobs because of that. Her marriage didn't go right. She was sick of taking second fiddle to men. <laughs> I mean, she wasn't an angry feminist by any means, but she was just sick of being maybe abused that way. And then reading that in the Bible, it's like, that's crazy. Well, I think when she wrapped her arms around what that really meant, she's like, oh, okay, I get that. And we have Bible study here at our corporate office. She started going to the Bible study and started having more questions answered. This was not a Catholic priest that comes in here. He's one of my best friends. He is a black Southern Baptist. (laughs) And these halls vibrate when that dude's in here. And my mom will come in there and sit. And my mom said, when I die, I want him to do the funeral. I went, yeah. The Rev Coy Boyer will do the funeral, Mom. Um, we got a few years yet, but uh, <laughs> but it's so cool to see your, my mom's faith open up. She's reading the Bible right now at you know 78 years old, and that helps my faith to see my mom open up like that. How many people that get to that age, our hearts are hardened, and whenever I get that feeling like my heart's hardened, I can look at my mom and go, look. She is opening her mind and she's opening her heart to the Word of God. 
and she's finishing strong. And I think, you know, I'm 55. I want to be that. As we get older, our hearts and our brains get twisted up. I know a lot of angry old people. I know more angry old people than I know really cool old people. <laughs> and my mom is this really cool old person that people like to be around. And uh, I want to be that way, you know. And what great storytelling and great job as always to Alex. And thanks as always to the folks at the Job Creators Network. They do such great work for small businesses all over this country. The beating heart of the American economy and the American dream. Briggs Sorber's story, two men and a truck story, and in the end, a mom's story too, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and Americans are expected to spend over $9 billion this year on Halloween, making it the second biggest commercial holiday behind only Christmas. More than half of American homes will be decorated on Halloween, and practically every American child will carve a pumpkin and go trick-or-treating. And no Halloween would be complete without a costume party or a visit to your local haunted house filled with ghouls and ghosts and plenty of staged blood. Today, we're going to bring to light the stories that have been hiding in the dark, answering the question, why do we do these strange things every Halloween? Brayden, go up there, say trick or treat. Trick or treat. Oh, there you go. What do you say? You're welcome. How do we describe Halloween without sounding insane? Mass children come to our doors and threaten us with a trick if we don't give them a treat. But why do we do this? And why do we carve faces into pumpkins, then light the candles inside? And why do we adorn our houses with coffins and tombstones? The truth is, we take great pleasure in scaring ourselves to death. This impulse is ancient. And so are our treasured Halloween traditions. Here's Talk Thompson, who teaches a ghost story seminar at USC. And its ancient origins go back to the old Celtic calendar. And the old Celtic tribes divided the year between a light half and a dark half. And uh, Samhain, their ancient holiday, was a precursor to our Halloween. It was the beginning of the dark half. Centuries before Christ, a tribe of warriors called the Celts celebrated their Samhain festival with bonfires on the night of October 31st across most of Europe and throughout the British Isles. The Samhain harvest represented the transition from the summer to the winter, and they were at the mercy of the elements. For these ancient peoples, it was a matter of life and death, and winter was the scariest season of them all. But the Celts believed there was even more to Samhain. Here's Leslie Bannatyne, author of Halloween Nation. It was a bit of a warning. You know, it's going to get cold and dark. Gather together, come home, and don't send anybody out alone in the dark. Here's USC history professor Lisa Biddle and Halloween historian David Skall. What marked Samhain and this transition from light to dark was that time and space became permeable, flexible. 
And so that spirits, not only of the dead, but of the past or of other realities could sort of wander into our reality and humans could wander out and get lost in the other world as well. The veil between life and death was at its thinnest and the living and the dead could commingle. And that's at the, the root of all the Halloween celebrations. On Samhain night only, the Celts believed those who had died in the past year walked the earth once more. But not every visiting ghost was friendly. So the Celts devised ways to appease these spirits. Here's professor of religion at Princeton University, Elaine Pagels. It comes from this very archaic sense that the dead return. You have to placate them, you have to do something with them, or they might, they might return and stay, they might trouble you and, you know, haunt you in various ways. To appease these spirits, the Celts would parade out to the edge of their villages with offerings of food and sweets as gifts for the dead, trying to coax the evil forces away from their homes. Here's Jack Santino, author of Halloween, Death and Life. The belief in death, the belief in the wandering spirits, the idea of dressing up in costumes and being allowed to perform mischief and pranks much as supernatural creatures would. Much of our contemporary Halloween traditions seem to be reflected in this ancient Celtic holiday called Samhain. The truth is, we know very little about Samhain, but what we do know is that their bonfires drew one familiar icon, the bat. In older times, people had bonfires on Halloween. Mosquitoes attracted to the bonfires, and the bats attracted to the mosquitoes, and probably the owls. Um, So you could see them flying over the Halloween bonfires, and they became associated with the holiday. How did these ancient traditions survive into our modern era? They were preserved by the Catholic Church. By the 7th century, the Catholic Church had spread throughout most of Europe. Missionaries, including St. Patrick, who would become the patron saint of Ireland, had successfully converted the pagan Celts. The church had found that conversion was far more successful when attempts were made to offer clear alternatives to existing calendar celebrations, rather than simply stamping them out. It was a tactic used under Pope Gregory I to convert more pagans. He said, if you should come across a group of people worshipping a tree, he said, rather than cut the tree down and tell them that they were ignorant and in error, he said, instead, consecrate it to Christ and tell them to keep meeting as they were accustomed to meeting at the same spot. A key pagan festival destined to get a Catholic makeover was Lemuria, a Roman festival of the dead on May 13th where they performed rites to exorcise the malevolent and fearful ghosts from their graves. Here's Brown University professor of Roman history, Nicola Lewis. Of all the different days that they have in the Roman calendar to celebrate the dead, it was the spookiest. So on the Lemuria, what are called the larvae, the ghosts of the departed would come up um, and haunt people. The church co-opted Lemuria in 609, turning May 13th into what they called All Saints Day, also known as All Hallows Day, the word hallow being equivalent to saint. All Hallows Day honored the most holy of dead Catholics, 
those saints who attained heaven. All Hallows Day was such a success that church leaders made a decision to drain the life out of Samhain. So they moved All Hallows Day from May 13th to November 1st. Because of this move, people started calling Samhain All Hallows Evening because it was the evening before All Hallows Day. And this quickly shortened into All Hallows Eve and finally into Halloween. And when we come back, more on the story of how Halloween came to be. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Greg Hengler and his piece on how Halloween came to be. People continued to dress in straw costumes or in animal skins, continued to put out offerings for the souls of the dead who were traveling at that particular time, continued to do much of what they had been accustomed to doing, but now doing it under the name of Halloween rather than under the name of Samhain. And then, to be safe... In the 10th century, the Catholic Church went one step further, adding a holiday to not just honor the saints in heaven, but all Catholics who died and had yet to reach heaven. So November 2nd became All Souls Day. In Mexico, this day is called the Day of the Dead. It's a blend of Spanish Catholic influences mixed with pre-existing pagan Indian elements. This is real important for Halloween because this is where Halloween gets its association with dead souls, death, and the supernatural again. The Catholic Church also established the tradition of trick-or-treating. It all started in the Middle Ages on All Souls Day when priests told church members to pray for souls trapped between heaven and hell in an intermediate world they call purgatory or final purification. Purgatory is not a pleasant place. It's not hell. It's not as bad as hell is, but it's still probably pretty fiery. Souls are kind of suffering there. Luckily, there is something that you could do. You could offer up prayers for them. So how do souls get out of purgatory? According to the church, if enough prayers were offered, a soul would be released up to heaven. Because of this, children would go souling, begging for soul cakes, which were spiced cakes filled with raisins. In return for these treats, the children and some adults would offer up prayers for souls trapped in purgatory. While this forerunner to trick-or-treat became a preoccupation for the medieval church, so did another future essential of Halloween, witches. Here's historian Steve Gillen. It made perfect sense for people in medieval times to believe that there were demons and witches. And if there were demons and witches and they were responsible for bad things in the world, it made sense that you hunt them down and you kill them. That was their worldview. A witch panic that climaxed in the late 16th century established the look of the character. 
almost always a woman, witches were seen as the devil's handmaiden bent on evil and destruction. Here's Lisa Morton, author of the fascinating book, Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. And a lot of the symbols that were associated with these women, who probably often lived alone, uh, may have been somewhat eccentric, of course, end up becoming associated with witches. In 1486, Pope Innocent VIII published a book claiming a direct link between witchcraft and the devil. He then outlawed the pagan Celtic religion altogether. Over time, even the practical cooking tools used by all acquired sinister dimensions and became model Halloween icons, thanks to witches. Even something mundane as a broom became an instrument of evil, as well as handy transportation. Another accessory in every witch's lair was perfect for brewing devilish potions, the cauldron. Here's a clip from the 1956 Looney Tunes episode starring Bugs Bunny and the incredibly vain and hilarious Witch Hazel. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. <laughs> Not bad. Cauldrons become very popular. Again, it was something that every household had in medieval ages. It was your basic cooking implement. The pointed witch's hat was a variation on a country woman's hat. And, of course, even the animals associated with witches took on a demonic character. Here's historian Libby O'Connell. It's not surprising that cats are associated with witches and Halloween. Cats can be a little enigmatic. Um, You don't really know what's going on in their head. Also, they used to hang out near the hearth and by the brooms. So they became associated with witchcraft and with Halloween. This period saw the continued influence of one of Halloween's most well-known icons, the mask, which also appeared in tandem with another unfortunate Halloween tradition, destructiveness. Beggars on All Hallows' Eve guzzled their share of alcohol and demands for food and drink became a bit threatening. Masks helped hide their identities. In Britain, they got into some very particular forms that involved dressing in costumes and going house to house to present these little plays. And at the end of the performance, they would be rewarded with food and sometimes money. By the early 16th century, the Catholic Church was undergoing enormous changes. On Halloween Day in 1517, exactly 500 years ago, Christian revolutionary Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, attacking Catholic dogma. By launching the Protestant Reformation, Luther changed the face of Christianity and Halloween forever. He rejected all those symbols that stood between worshipers and God, including popes, priests, and saints. So, when saints went out of favor, so did All Saints Day and, of course, All Hallows' Eve. But the holiday was too popular to go away completely. In 17th century England, 
These customs survived only in rural areas. But thanks to a Catholic militant named Guy Fox, they would soon turn up in the city streets. On November 5th, 1605, Fox tried to blow up the Protestant-dominated House of Lords with 36 kegs of gunpowder. His plan was to assassinate King James I and restore a Catholic monarch to the throne. Guy Fox was tried, found guilty, and hanged. And according to legend, his body was then drawn and quartered and the pieces were thrown into a fire. The next year on the anniversary of the failed plot and the years following, London's children and adults mocked the memory of Guy Fawkes by causing chaos in the streets, parading, begging, and building bonfires. Today in England, this is called Guy Fawkes Day, or Bonfire Night. The custom that has evolved over the centuries in England is for children to make effigies of Guy Fawkes, and then Guy Fawkes is burnt on a bonfire. They spend several weeks prior to November 5th with their dummies and asking people for a penny for the guy. It's a begging tradition, not unlike trick-or-treating in its own way. But would this pagan celebration make its way across the Atlantic to disrupt the sanctuary of the New World? For the Bible-believing Puritans of New England, the supernatural was a dark, menacing force not a harmless superstition worthy of a yearly holiday observance. They considered Halloween too pagan and too Catholic. The Protestants being rebels broke away from the Church of England because they believed it was too Catholic. And they left England for the colonies for this reason. And so they didn't want to carry anything with them that had to do with Catholicism. And Halloween was something that had to do with Catholicism. By the mid-19th century, America was primed for a much darker holiday. Having endured four long years of civil war that ended in 1865 with over a half a million dead. There were so many unclaimed, unknown dead bodies that the civil war left behind that this country was obsessed with death. And mostly it was that so many of these soldiers died unknown. We don't know what happened to them. So there was a huge sense of they could come back. Maybe they're not dead. It makes perfect sense that people would tell more ghost stories. And the very first Halloween ghost stories were about people coming back home. It's at this time America's Halloween story begins. And when we come back, America and Halloween here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our Halloween story, Halloween Comes to America. After the Civil War in Virginia, which hosted a large Catholic and Anglican population, the holiday thrived when Scottish and Irish immigrants brought their rural Old World Halloween customs with them and they helped to establish even more American Halloween traditions. For the Scots, it was a little bit of a scarier night. Until fairly late, we're still talking about the appearance of bogies on Halloween. Bogies, or boogeymen, were ghosts used by adults to frighten children into good behavior, especially around Halloween time. They were said to be hiding under beds, tapping on windows, or lurking by a gate. Halloween's signature symbol, the jack-o'-lantern, also began as a European tradition, but the prototype wasn't carved from a pumpkin. There's a great legend about a character named Jack-o'-lantern. And Jack was a troublemaker, but he was so bad, he even managed to get himself thrown out of hell, which is not an easy thing to do. But the devil did decide to have pity on him and scooped up an ember from the fires of hell and gave it to him. So Jack takes the ember and he puts it inside a hollowed out turtle. And he walks around and that becomes the legend of Jack O'Lantern. In one age-old European practice, children would carve their own jack-o'-lanterns out of turnips and light them with candles. Here's historian Donna Curtin. The first reference we have in the United States to jack-o'-lantern comes from Nathaniel Hawthorne, and he's writing in Twice Told Tales, and he's describing someone's very tattered coat full of holes, and when you hold it up to the light, it shines like a jack-o'-lantern would. Planted in July and harvested in October, Americans substituted the big round orange pumpkin for the old world's hard little turnips. And Halloween finally had its trademark. The ghastly face of Halloween was reimagined in gruesome shades of orange and black at the turn of the 20th century. For the first time, Artists of the era brought together all things scary and linked them to Halloween. Skeletons, spiderwebs, jack-o'-lanterns, and bats. They all established the look of Halloween that we still use today. Among these icons is the white sheeted ghost. The sheet that a ghost wears derives from uh, the winding sheet, the shroud that corpses were traditionally wrapped in before burial. Horned devils came from medieval depictions of Satan and witches from witch-hunting hysteria that swept through Europe and Puritan America. Witches became very popular in the early part of the 20th century, which is why they naturally became linked to Halloween. And there's actually a change in the way we perceive witches. The witches... Uh, the 19th century were old, they had big noses and there were warts, and the witches in the 20th century are actually kind of attractive. It makes Halloween just a little, not only scary, but also a little naughty. But even as Halloween was dressing its old customs in new costumes, it was also creating new traditions. Bad ones. 
In the early 20th century, Halloween was getting out of hand. Young vandals were destroying private property and causing mischief on Halloween to the dread of the locals and police departments all over America. If Halloween were to survive, it would have to change. Schools and police departments and other civic groups consciously and very actively promoted the idea of taming Halloween. And so they started to invent all sorts of things for kids to do, to divert them. Townwide parties, costume contests, games, everything that you could think of to get the kids away from pulling tricks and into the light. Novelty companies like Denison Company helped out these civic efforts. Denison published a series of Halloween booklets called Bogey Books that suggested ways of turning Halloween from a prank night into a party night. Denison was one of the first companies that realized there was money to be made off of Halloween. They started to put their own Halloween materials out for retail sale in drugstores all over America. Denison also sold masks and paper costumes. It was the first time costumes were specifically made and marketed for Halloween. Before that, costumes had all been homemade. Soon, other manufacturers looking to tap into the kid market for Halloween began making more durable costumes. Sears' first box costumes came around 1930, and then it, it went from there. And the costumes came off of radio show characters and the funny papers. Costumes for parties, costumes for wild, town-wide parties, and for school parties and church parties. Halloween was a big social occasion. Halloween parades also helped drag the holiday out from the shadows and into the public arena. Allentown, Pennsylvania, may have been the first parade in 1905, but others soon followed. Tom's River, New Jersey in 1919, and the little town of Anoka, Minnesota in 1920. Anoka residents got tired of waking up on November 1st to find their cattle roaming on Main Street. A result of Halloween pranking, so, Anoka civic leaders instituted a program of Halloween parades, giveaways, and bonfires. Anoka has held its parade every year since. In fact, the city with a population of 17,000 now bills itself the Halloween capital of the world. Storyteller extraordinaire Garrison Keeler creator of the Minnesota public radio show A Prairie Home Companion, remembers what it was like growing up in the Halloween capital of the world. There was a big granite chip mosaic on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Main Street that said, Anoka, Minnesota, Halloween capital of the world, and a black witch in the center of it. So there was proof. The reason for Halloween in Anoka, the big civic part of it, the children in their costumes marching down the street, was to try to blunt or thwart um, the tradition of vandalism, mischief, which was the other side of Halloween, of course. 
You could toilet paper somebody's house, and I don't know if you've ever tried to get wet toilet paper out of a very tall maple tree, but uh, after you've done that, you start to believe in capital punishment. Each of these local efforts to tame Halloween worked to some extent, but what Halloween really needed was a whole new tradition, and it would soon get one. Trick-or-treat is amazingly new. People think trick-or-treat goes back for centuries, and it doesn't. Trick-or-treat is actually less than 80 years old, probably. Um, The term derives from pranking that was very widespread and destructive in America in the 20th century. And at some point, somebody came up with the brilliant idea of buying off these pranksters. Homeowners bribed rowdy kids with homemade treats such as popcorn balls and candy apples to avoid getting pranked or tricked. In 1939, the phrase and the custom turned up in print. Doris Hudson Moss published an article in American Home Magazine that talked about the success she had having a Halloween open house for the kids in her neighborhood. She didn't get tricked. She gave them sweets. It all worked. And when we come back, the final segment, our Halloween story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Greg Hengler and his very special reporting on Halloween, its origins, how it came to America, and now the final part of this story. Trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat for Halloween. With new customs came new treats. Now kids began getting store-bought prepackaged candies. Mars bars, Reese's Cups, M&M's, and good old Hershey's chocolate. Candy finally killed the rowdy Halloween. And now the time was right for the reinvented holiday to hit Hollywood. Hollywood has forever made movies from the creepy to the comical. Here's the 1952 Disney short titled Trick or Treat starring Donald Duck. Donald's nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, approach their uncle's door for a Halloween treat. Uh But Donald drops a trick into the boys' pillowcases. Lit firecrackers. And then follows it up by dropping on them a bucket of water that's been dangling above their heads. In 1966, just a year following A Charlie Brown Christmas, Halloween stature zoomed off the charts when America went trick-or-treating with Charlie Brown. Here's executive producer of the Peanuts animated specials, Lee Mendelson. 
The whole idea of the Great Pumpkin, of course, came from the comic strip when Sparky Schultz decided that it would be very funny if one of the kids got his holidays mixed up. And uh, so that's how Linus ends up in the pumpkin patch every year. Who are you writing to, Linus? This is the time of year to write to the Great Pumpkin. On Halloween night, the Great Pumpkin rises out of his pumpkin patch and flies through the air with this bag of toys for all the children. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? When you stop believing in that fellow with the red suit and the white beard. Halloween night. A small American town. Fifteen years ago. Halloween-themed cartoons were one thing. A movie for adults with Halloween as its theme was another. Nobody had ever tried it before. That is, until director John Carpenter took a stab at it in 1978 with the simply titled classic, Halloween. Michael? Here's John Carpenter. The idea for calling my film Halloween came from the distributor. And when he said it, I thought, you know, he's absolutely right. There's never been really a Halloween-themed film. It's one of those eye-openers. Wow, why didn't I think of that years ago? What a great idea. Carpenter's $325,000 film about Michael Myers, a silent killer who escapes from a mental institution on Halloween, would spawn a franchise grossing more than $500 million. It also elevated the horror film from B-movie status to a respected genre. The slasher film also redefines speed. We learn that no matter how fast you run, Michael Myers walks faster. Carpenter's self-composed Halloween theme became recognizable apart from the movie. Here's John Carpenter and his band performing his iconic Halloween theme in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater in 2016. Horror movies will live forever. And completely by accident, Carpenter's film would also redefine our attitudes about Halloween masks. It started when the wardrobe budget forced the crew to create a mask for the villain for next to nothing. Here again is John Carpenter. The production designer ran up to Burt Wheeler's magic shop on Hollywood Boulevard and bought this Captain Kirk from Star Trek mask, which didn't look anything like William Shatner, just looked this strange face, elongated face. But it was spray painted and, and, and fixed up a little bit. It was distorted, which is perfect. It's kind of written that way in the script, as wearing a face. The bargain basement mask and the villain behind it soon became another Halloween icon. Today, that trend has escalated to an obsession. Nail-biting knockoff film franchises like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, and Halloween are inspiring growing legions of kids to dress to kill. Masks take their inspiration from pop culture, religion, politics, sports, you name it. And a growing number of faces behind them belong not to kids, but adults. 
Halloween has become a huge adult activity, and I, and I don't think that was uh, the case, say, 50, 60 years ago. But it's been, again, specific days set aside where you can be somebody that you normally aren't. Uh, you can get behind a mask, you can wear clothes you would never wear during the rest of the year, uh, and people enjoy these. You get those children who are now growing up, and they become very nostalgic for Halloween. So Halloween shifts again, starts to become more of an adult holiday. Fifty years ago, when you were too old to trick-or-treat, you probably had to stay home and hand out candy. There was nothing else for you to do. Now there is a vast and imaginative haunted house industry just for you. And there's something like 4,000 haunted houses in the United States every year. Here again is John Carpenter. I loved haunted houses. They fascinated me. They terrified me as a kid. But haunted houses aren't the only activity for adults on Halloween. From the two million people attending New York City's Greenwich Village Halloween Parade to the half a million attending West Hollywood's Halloween Carnival, the holiday takes a walk on the wild and naughty side. If you look at the costumes that are sold to adults these days, the costumes for women are all kind of borderline prostitute costumes. You know, the sexy nurse, the sexy maid, the sexy anything. Clearly, a lot of women want to have a very sexy side of them, and it's only on Halloween that they bring it out. Maybe, you know, they could do a little more often. Not surprisingly, alcohol plays a huge role in Halloween's popularity. So much so that by the 1990s, beer sales for Halloween surpassed both the Super Bowl and St. Patrick's Day. Halloween's popularity is also due to the fact that it embodies the American obsession with self-transformation, being who you aren't or who you would like to be. Trick-or-treaters remain on high alert today. And just as Halloween has scared kids for years, Halloween scares parents too. They fear sending their kids out into a hostile world of trick-or-treats full of poisoned candy and razor blade riddled apples. Reynoldsburg police confirm it was a razor blade found in a piece of candy. They're recommending you spread out all of your children's candy and inspect each piece. I grew up hearing about razor blades and apples myself. And it's clearly what we would call a contemporary legend. Uh, another term is urban legend. There's a great societal unease about this idea that we're telling our kids to go take candy from strangers. So there's a lot of stories about razor blades and candied apples and, and these sorts of things. Uh, and parents every year get very, very worried about it. Did razor blades and apples ever happen? Uh, I believe there are a couple of cases, but of course you can ask which came first, you know, the story or the actions. Razor blades and apples, jack-o'-lanterns, soul cakes. They make up the legends, the texture of the Halloween we know. Today, Halloween wears many masks, yet it still remains the domain of kids. When you're a kid, you had one night a year where you were in charge, you got to dress up, you got to be something that you usually weren't, and you kind of even got paid for the privilege of this. It was an amazing holiday. Look closely, and you will see Halloween is a showcase for everything the human race fears. Through the centuries, we've learned to live and tame that which scares us most. 
It's invigorating, it's sensual, there's a freedom to it that is very, very enjoyable. At the same time, it's ritualized. You can do this at a certain time, a certain place. Some of the images of Halloween, some of the decorations, if people would have put them out at any other time of the year, their neighbors would call the police. But at Halloween, you're allowed to take these very disturbing kinds of ideas and deal with them directly. There's a great liberation, a great sense of freedom to that. It is on this day of freedom that Americans turn their fears into fun. I'm Greg Hengler. And we here at Our American Stories would like to wish you and yours a very happy and safe Halloween. And great job as always on that, Greg. And my favorite part of the art, I'd read Hawthorne, I was an American lit major. I did not know he introduced the jack-o'-lantern into America. Again, thanks for those details, Greg. A lot of work goes into pieces like this. And you can hear all that we do here on Our American Stories. Go to Our American Network. Dot org. The Halloween story here on Our American Stories.